When I was a kid, my favorite time of the year, well, okay, my second favorite time of the year behind Christmas, was fall premiere week. All summer long, I'd sit in front of the TV, doesn't everyone? Watching promos for the great new shows that would be coming along in September. And then that magical day would arrive, and I'd get my hands on the TV Guide fall preview issue. The curtain's opening on the new TV season, and nothing gets you into it like TV Guide's fall preview. Get the full lineup of new stars and new shows. The TV networks would also come up with themes to hype their shows. Usually three word phrases. We're the one. Come on along. You and me. NBC us. Hold my beer. Okay, I made that one up. those days, the TV networks made a big deal out of the start of the fall season because it was when they introduced most of their shows. And in the fall of 1971, there was a special reason to celebrate. Movie stars were coming to TV. Doris Day and Henry Fonda already had shows of their own, and that fall they were joined by Shirley MacLaine, Rock Hudson, James Stewart, Anthony Quinn, Glenn Ford, Tony Curtis, and Gene Kelly. By the end of the season, Doris Day and Rock Hudson would be the only ones standing. With a TV show, I mean. It's not like everyone else died or anything. But 1971 dealt a hard blow to people like Fonda and Stewart. The truth was that being a big movie star wasn't enough to automatically succeed on TV, especially when the shows they starred in, for the most part, were as predictable and mediocre as any other garden-variety TV show. So by the end of the season, the landscape was littered with the wreckage of canceled programs. And we all know how ugly that can be. Today on The Potluck, we will review the figurative carnage and see what happened when big-screen stars went up against the small screen and came up short. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Welcome to the Potluck. I'm David Inman. Today, the lines between television and movies are blurrier than ever, where actors we might associate with movies willingly work in TV on shows airing everywhere from Netflix to HBO. Jane Fonda on Grace and Frankie, for example, or Anthony Hopkins on Westworld. That's a big contrast to the way show business worked in 1971. In those days, there was a definite line drawn between movie stars and TV stars. Very few could successfully straddle both mediums. The thinking was that if people could see you for free on TV, they wouldn't pay to see you in the movies. And if you crossed over to TV, you were basically admitting that your movie career was over. 
But by 1971, things were changing in Hollywood. The old guard was finding movie roles harder to come by. They were being edged out by young performers and the youth-obsessed executives who ran the studios. These performers, who were film icons, also became attracted to the big money to be made in a successful TV series, especially if you owned a piece of the show. The ultimate example was Lucille Ball, who switched almost exclusively to TV in the early 1950s and made only a couple of movies after that. And, of course, as part of that deal, she ended up owning a chunk of Desilu Productions. But that was a lot harder than it looked, and Lucy was the exception to the rule. The first of the group to find that out was Henry Fonda, who came to ABC in early 1971 in a half-hour comedy drama. Henry Fonda stars in The Smith Family. How do you feel about hamsters? Hamsters? I'm under control. Scott doesn't dig Dad. He's never even met him. Dad's a cop, Mom. She wants us to have lunch with him. Can't. Generation gap. Were you the arresting officer, Sergeant Smith? No, I'm the father of the defendant. The Smith family was produced by Don Federson, and if you don't know his name, you undoubtedly know some of his shows, including My Three Sons and Family Affair. Federson made mild family sitcoms, usually about a single father and his adorable kids. Most importantly, Federson worked around his stars, Fred McMurray of My Three Sons and Brian Keith of Family Affair. Shooting was arranged far in advance so that McMurray and Keith would come in, film a season's worth of scenes in a concentrated amount of time, and leave as quickly as possible. The rest of the cast would then stay behind and fill in the holes. Henry Fonda liked the idea of that arrangement. It would free him up to do work on the stage. He also said he signed with Federson because, quote, the numbers were right, unquote. So a concept was developed. Fonda would play L.A. police detective Chad Smith. He had a nice wife, Betty, played by Janet Blair, and three nice kids. He would face challenges in his work, but there was very little police action on the show. Mostly we saw Chad come home after a hard day of fighting crime and deal more with family problems than urban problems. Fonda had complete cast and script approval. Ron Howard played the oldest Smith's son, and he recently talked to a reporter about the experience. For Fonda, that was a money job. The Smith family was also a real lesson in what mediocrity looked like. It was not a good show. I'd been on The Andy Griffith Show, and as easygoing as it looked to viewers, there was a tremendous work ethic behind that show led by Andy. There was also a clear-cut vision defined by the writers and defined by Andy that was adhered to. The difference was noticeable to me then. The Smith family was being manufactured. The Andy Griffith Show was being lovingly handmade every week. That was an important lesson to me. I don't believe in manufacturing. On the other hand, Fonda gave Howard some of his earliest encouragement about becoming a film director. He was the one who saw my Super 8 movies and said, you know, if you love movies, you should become a director because it's a director's medium and I can see that you can do it. That meant so much. The Smith Family was not a critical or audience success. TV God critic Cleveland Amory said, 
Its timing is off, about 20 years off. Fonda's good friend James Stewart also decided to come to TV in 1971. As with Fonda, money was a consideration, as was the lack of good movie roles. He also might have been looking for something to distract him. His stepson had been killed in Vietnam the year before. The Jimmy Stewart Show, it's one of the few times that Stewart was billed as Jimmy rather than James, was created by veteran comedy writer Hal Cantor, who in a long career had provided material for everyone from Jerry Lewis to George Goebel to Ed Wynn. He was also a longtime writer for the Academy Awards, working with hosts like Bob Hope, Johnny Carson, and Billy Crystal. Cantor had worked with Stewart on the film Dear Bridget, and their relationship dated to when Cantor wrote for Bing Crosby's radio show and Stewart was a guest star. Stewart originally wanted to do a sitcom with his wife, Gloria. The show would be roughly a cross between The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet and The Jack Benny Show, on which Stewart and his wife had guest starred occasionally. But unfortunately, the network nixed the idea, saying Gloria Stewart wasn't polished enough as an actress. Cantor then came up with an idea about a college professor in a small California town. Most of the stories would center around his family, including the fact that he had two sons roughly 20 years apart in age, and a grandson who was the same age as his younger son. Procter & Gamble bought the idea, and it went into a Sunday night time slot they owned on NBC, right after the wonderful world of Disney. Stewart would receive $35,000 an episode, a little over $200,000 in 2017 money. Perhaps you can get an idea of the show's pace just by listening to its theme song. The New York Times called The Jimmy Stewart Show a show heavy with integrity and heavier with banality and boredom. And in TV Guide, Cleveland Amory wrote, This show was sold to NBC without a pilot. According to the story, all Mr. Stewart had to do was talk to the network executives. What's it about, he was asked. It's about half an hour, he replied. Everybody, the story continued, fell down laughing. Since then, the show has fallen down, but not, unfortunately, laughing. If ever there was a situation comedy that just sits, this is it. Like Fonda, Stewart had cast and script approval, which led to some sticky situations. When Cantor wrote a script about Stewart's character's grandfather being illiterate, mean, and a coward, Stewart drew the line. My grandfather might be illiterate and mean, but he just couldn't ever be a coward, Stewart told Cantor. Stewart also got upset when he mistakenly thought that a black actor was going to play a police officer on the show. A black is going to be lecturing me with millions of people watching? No way. I get casting approval, and he is out. Because of Stewart's well-known conservatism and his hawkish stance on Vietnam, 
Stuart was a retired brigadier general in the Air Force Reserve, Cantor urged the other cast members to avoid hot conversation topics. One of the actresses on the show, Ellen Gear, later said, It could really give you the creeps to read something in the paper, walk onto that set, and then see Jimmy standing around with a bunch of generals from the Air Force. It was like being on another planet. Ironically, Stewart actually had to turn down a movie role because of a TV series. It was the part of Sam in The Last Picture Show, and it went instead to actor Ben Johnson, who, like Stewart, had appeared in several westerns directed by John Ford. Johnson would win an Oscar for his performance. As much money as Stewart received for his TV series, he was outpaced by Shirley MacLaine, who made $47,500 an episode. That's almost $300,000 in today's money for a show called Shirley's World. To that point, it was the highest salary in TV history. Shirley's World was another half-hour series on ABC with McLean as photojournalist Shirley Logan, who worked for World Illustrated magazine. The show would feature extensive location photography all over Europe and Asia. McLean had been approached about the TV series by Sir Lou Grade, a British producer of movies and TV shows, who was behind such series as the cult classic The Prisoner with Patrick McGowan and The Muppet Show. I want you, Grade told her, because you're known to every housewife in America who eats meat patties when the TV set is on in the living room. Together, we'll help raise the level of television in America. Grade thought that the perfect producing partner for McLean would be Sheldon Leonard, whose credits included The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Andy Griffith Show, and I Spy. But the pairing was a mistake. The tone was set at their first meeting when Leonard entered smoking a cigar and McLean asked him to put it out because it was making her sick. It also didn't help that they had very different views about the show. Leonard was an old-school producer who knew how to make a sitcom. McLean wanted the show to have a message, to incorporate themes from the women's movement. This led to episodes that were an odd mix, like the one where Shirley Logan leads a women's march into a men's-only club in London and the men all act like scared children and run away. Other episodes would be more corny and traditional, with Shirley acting as a matchmaker or a problem solver. The problem with my series was in the area of the decision-making process and television's traditional attitudes toward women. The blame for the failure of my series must be shared by the creative people of TV, producers, writers, directors, who are badly out of touch with our culture. They have a minimum respect for the American public, for the people out there watching the show, who are a lot more intelligent than they're given credit for. As for the people out there watching the show, there weren't very many of them. After a few weeks on the air, Shirley's World was getting lower ratings than the ABC Evening News, which at that point was consistently in third place among network newscasts. Let's face it, one executive told TV Guide, she just got a lousy, plotless show. Shirley's World would barely make it into 1972. Sheldon Leonard blamed McLean for the show's problems, specifically her interference with scripts. Most others sided with McLean. T 
TV Guide's Cleveland Amory said, although other movie stars have been treated pretty shabbily by television, notably Henry Fonda and James Stewart, Shirley MacLaine has really not been served at all. The irony is that Miss MacLaine is a bright, interesting woman, and all they had to do to make a good show was shoot the real Shirley. The Smith Family, The Jimmy Stewart Show, and Shirley's World were the highest profile flops of the season, but there were others. In Cades County, a modern western, Glenn Ford played Sam Cade, sheriff of a large county in the southwest. CBS hoped the show would take a bite out of Bonanza, but that didn't happen. The Funny Side, an NBC musical comedy show hosted by Gene Kelly, fizzled out, as did The Man in the City, an ABC drama with Anthony Quinn as the mayor of a major southwestern city. Tony Curtis and Roger Moore were a pair of adventurers in the ABC series The Persuaders, but that series ended when Moore left the show to start making movies as 007. As we mentioned earlier, only Rock Hudson and Doris Day, once a romantic couple in the movies, made it through the season. Day had a sitcom on CBS that began almost as a fluke. Her husband manager, Marty Melcher, had committed her to the series, but then he died without telling her about it. The show began in 1968 and underwent many format changes during its five-season run, but it was securely scheduled on Monday nights alongside popular shows like Here's Lucy and Mayberry RFD and inherited their audiences. Rock Hudson's show was Macmillan and Wife, in which he played San Francisco Police Commissioner Stuart McMillan, who was always getting involved in crime-solving in the style of The Thin Man, with Wife Sally, played by Susan St. James. Beyond the arrival of movie stars on the tube, 1971 was a pivotal year in television history, largely because of one show, All in the Family. It was truly revolutionary in its look at blue-collar bigot Archie Bunker and his family, and it was overwhelmingly popular. Turns out Shirley MacLaine was right. Audiences were ready for something different and more daring on TV, not just another family sitcom or cop show. But life went on. Fonda would go back to making commercials for Viewmaster, doing stage work and the occasional movie, he won an Oscar in 1982 for On Golden Pond. McLean would start writing autobiographical books and doing stage work, and she won an Oscar for the 1984 film Terms of Endearment. James Stewart rebounded by returning to one of his best-known roles as Elwood P. Dowd in a revival of Harvey on Broadway and then in London, as well as a 1973 TV production. Nobody seemed to remember or care that this guy was in a silly sitcom just a few years earlier. The funny thing is, TV really did showcase Stewart's talent, at least as a great storyteller. Just check out his clips on the Johnny Carson show that you can find on YouTube. When reporters would visit him on the set of the Jimmy Stewart show, he would easily be talked into reminiscing. And one day during such a visit, he looked around the studio backlot and said to no one in particular, the movies. Once I thought they were indestructible. The Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck is written, edited, produced, and narrated by me, 
David Inman. In this episode, I also impersonated the voices of Sir Lou Grade and Jimmy Stewart, and for both of those, I apologize. My wife, Joyce, provided the voice of Ellen Gear, and my daughter, Nora Inman, provided the voice of Shirley MacLaine. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to us on iTunes or check out episodes on the Incredible Inman Facebook page. See you later.